Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Well, hello. I am Chris Dyerwald. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Heck yeah, you are. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where... What do we do? We break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, thank you for obliging me on a remote recording because, look, let's be very honest. No one wants to hear about the travel miseries of the pampered American media. No one wants to hear it. And I frankly hate myself for ever talking about it. <clears throat> but as I observed, well, Chris, I'll tell you all about my miseries next week when it's me traveling to and from Palm Beach. Oh, very nice. Br brutal, brutal. Very nice. But, Sorry, you had to go to Iowa, New Hampshire. But take as some recompense, and I was—I I told some folks this yesterday. If you don't like the American news media, watching us all sitting around the Manchester airport, checking our phones like rats in a Skinner box for updates on our delayed flights back to Washington. And many, many famous names and faces gathered around staring at our phones as the airlines continue to push your flights. It would, it, would, it would give critics of the American media some satisfaction to see us reduced to that state. Chris, let's talk New Hampshire. How was it? No, this thing's over, right? Well, if you if you will indulge me in some actual news as as opposed to the news about the news, it depends on what Donald Trump does. It depends on what Nikki Haley does, and it depends, frankly, on what voters and, by extension, the viewing and clicking public want. The turnout in New Hampshire was bonkers, right? Like I was expecting Iowa saw a 41% decrease in turnout. And I thought, well, it won't be that deep because there isn't a blizzard, but the turnout will be down. Turnout was way up, right? Like record setting, biggest ever turnout. So, you know, 10 or 15% higher than the all-time high before, which was 2016. And if Donald Trump, remember Donald Trump used to be, used to say, I, I, I could be so presidential. I could be as, I could be more presidential than anybody. If Donald Trump remains calm, right, and doesn't take the bait from Nikki Haley and doesn't engage, this ship will just sail right out on into the ocean. He will be like Mitt Romney. He will be like John McCain and George Bush and, and many Bob Dole, which is, yeah, there'll be people grousing and he won't, he, he'll, but he'll get 60, 70% of the delegates and it will be meh. So that that so what whether or not he wants to engage, whether he can resist engaging, and then number two is, does Nikki Haley want to be hated by half of the Republican Party? In the past, people like the aforementioned Santorum, Rick Huckabee, uh, Mike Huckabee, whomever were like, fine, you're going to hate me for doing it, but I'm chasing the front runner, and I'm going to get my people out, and we're going to go on and on, and you're going to continue to get. Maybe she could get forty percent of the delegates. 
But in so doing, she would not only earn the lasting hatred of the Trump Corps, that third of the party, but also the large number of Republicans who just want it to be over. But the last thing is, does we know the media, I want to cover a race, right? I like it. I'm, I find it interesting. I find politics interesting. And I have devoted my vocational life to its coverage and analysis. But if viewers aren't tuning in, I haven't seen what the Tuesday night ratings were like. But if, if people are tuning in and clicking on it, it will, it will continue to get covered. It will continue to happen. Chris, I just don't see how she stays in and gets romped in her home state where in New Hampshire, she had Chris Sununu, the governor, the popular governor out there campaigning for her in her home state. The major political figures in that state have endorsed Trump and he is leading by an even bigger margin than he was leading in Iowa and New Hampshire. That's difficult for me to see. And I think there is a cost to her continuing in that right now she could offer her endorsement in exchange for something for him. She may not want to be the vice presidential nominee. She may not want to be in his cabinet, but she may want to get something for the people on her campaign. She may want to get them positions on his campaign. She may want to push him on policy positions in exchange for her endorsement. I think the chances of her being able to get something in exchange decreases as the campaign goes on. Unless, unless she improves. So right now I'm looking at the most recent polls out of South Carolina, and they're all taken before Iowa, and they're all taken before New Hampshire. And Trump is up. 30 points, right? There's a Emerson poll mid that has him up 29 on Haley. Now, the next poll that's taken in South Carolina, he will not be up 29 on Haley. He will, he'll go up probably a little bit, but she'll go up too. And if you're Haley, who in 2010 fought all the same people who have endorsed Trump, right? Like, the sitting governor, Henry McMaster, and others, those were her opponents. Those are the people who she fought in 2010. So if you're Haley, I, if, if I were Haley and I was willing to take the risk on 2028, like if I was really willing to risk the future, I'd go down to South Carolina and I'd run like hell, right? You know the state, you know the people. And for her, if she could do 40% in South Carolina, which is not unthinkable if she could have a, if she could if she could replicate her performance there that she did in New Hampshire or close to it I don't know like basically she's got to send a message to the suburban affluent republican electorate that's in California that's in suburban Texas that's in Georgia 2 weeks after that if she can send a message to them like we're we're still doing this then maybe they hang around. I don't know. It's the the thing that I like about this race, frankly, is the variability in what we could see. Right? If it were Trump and DeSantis, if DeSantis had been viable in New Hampshire, or if it were Trump and Chris, let's say Christie was the second place in New Hampshire, you would know very well what would happen next. But in this case, depending on what how Trump responds and what 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 is I guess the question is this 
what is Nikki Haley's risk tolerance? Because there's reward if she's willing to sort of mortgage her future. And the speech that she gave was right. And, and what does she want? Does she want, you, you know, what does she want in, in 2024 and 2028? Does she want to be in the Trump cabinet? Does she want to be potentially the vice presidential nominee, which of which I don't think there's a big chance. But I think that's part of it. And, and I don't know the answer to that. So I agree with your premise that selling out now is more valuable than selling out after South Carolina if she loses South Carolina by 30 points. Selling out later if she loses South Carolina by 10 points and it's a competitive race and Trump has to go do it and poor Tim Scott has to go down. And I think Tim Scott and Ron DeSantis did not expect a, a, a race as close as it was in New Hampshire, and they were expecting it to be over. So now it, Tim Scott's got to spend a month in South Carolina running against Nikki Haley and doing cringy interviews. If you're Haley, if you can hold Trump's feet to the fire, you get more later on, right? You you get a bigger, whatever it is that you want, you get a bigger bite. And then you might even, I don't, I think Trump does not want her as his running mate for a couple of reasons. One is he doesn't like her, I'm sure, and doesn't want an ambitious younger woman nipping at his heels. So you think Elise Stefanik is out too? I think Elise Stefanik, Christy Nome, I think Katie Britt has some promise, right? Trump really likes her and her husband, and she is accessible and palatable to mainstream Republicans and is a good telegenic. She's good at it. She's a, she's a possible. And that husband's telegenic too, Chris. Right. And Trump loves them because they're, as he would say, right out of central casting. Yep. The husband was a, the quarterback at the University of Alabama. And he played for Bob Kraft, who, who is a friend of Donald Trump. Bop, 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 bop. So that's one. Ben Carson is one. Like the who Trump picks as his running mate, obviously we know Trump will turn it into a reality show, a reality show that will run until July, right? This is a this is a this is going to be a long running show. But I think if I'm Trump, I look at Elise Stefanik and I say, I want the so if Mike Pence was the vanilla version of Ted Cruz, you want to appeal to the Ted Cruz voters, but you want somebody who will be subservient, right? You want a person who will not be problematic. I think Gnome, if you're if you're doing it that way, like, okay, I want a younger woman who is attitudinally aligned and and absolutely ambitious. Gnome is the better of those two because Stefanik, deep down, Trump knows, has to know that she's a phony, right? Like it's the 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 phony vibes are very strong with her, given her peripatetic policy positions and relentless ambition. So I, I don't know, but I think Trump is not going to know until he's got the nomination absolutely sewn up. And if he has to pay a higher price to get the nomination sewn up, if Haley inflicts that price, Trump will be obliged to choose a more somebody who can appeal to those Haley voters and the voters in places like the suburbs of Dallas, like the suburbs of Atlanta, like the Phoenix suburbs where Nikki Haley scores well. Can we talk about, I feel a little bit of guilt because I was on our friend, our friends, 
commentary podcast yesterday, our friend John Pethortz and Christine Rosen and Matt Continetti, all of our friends, and we talked about this piece in passing, but I really think it was one of the best pieces written on the New Hampshire primary. Oh my gosh, this um, is so good. Politico piece by Michael Cruz. Yes. Headline, our system needs to be broken and he's the man to do it. And it, it is a profile of a New Hampshire voter, Ted Johnson. And the subheadline is, Ted Johnson sincerely thought he wanted a uniter and not a divider. It didn't last long. And it's a wonderful profile about a voter who entertained voting for Nikki Haley and reverted to Donald Trump. And it is complete with his fallout with his brother over Donald Trump. It's such a wonderful profile of of this guy and I highly recommend it to to our readers. And he says in the interview with Politico's Michael Cruz, whose columns are routinely excellent, you know what happened, he said, and and this is the the New Hampshire voter, Ted Johnson. You know what happened? He said, I got pissed. The rift with his brother remains. Ted and Fred Johnson don't talk, but Ted and I talked for more than three hours. The more he watched Haley, the less he liked her. She was too scripted, he said. She was weak on the border, he said. She was a corporatist, he said. She was all in on Ukraine, he said, echoing knowingly or not some of Trump's attacks. Chris Sununu, the governor here, endorsed her. That was a negative, Johnson said. He's an elitist. He liked the way Haley talked about abortion. She threaded the needle and she did a very good job on that. But he came not to like her tone and her tussles with DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy during deba debates, a forum many felt she excelled in and credited for fueling the rise. She should have took some higher ground when she started sparring with Vivek, Johnson told me. She came off worse because he doesn't know any better, he said. And it really struck me that the things that that played well with so many and what I would describe as our set, Chris, sort of the reporters and the folks on sort of the upper middle class center right are what alienated the Trump voters who were open, may have been open to her. And there's a real diploma d divide between the Trump voters and the Haley voters that that I actually think will hurt Trump in the general election. Yes. Well, the question basically that Republicans are facing, can they turn up the volume on working class voters, including uh, a significant number of Hispanic and black non-white working class men to make up for the losses that they are going to experience with college educated suburbanites, right? Because the, the diploma divide, we, the gender divide, we don't have a gender divide. We have a marriage divide and it is reinforced by, and if you look at New Hampshire, you go to the places where you have two thirds of the population with a college degree, Nikki Haley wins 65% of the vote. You go to the places where people have, where 30% of people have college degrees, Trump wins 70% of the vote. And the, what this guy said, and this was flagged, it was actually, I knew it was going to be a good piece because my darling Jessica was the one who flagged it for me. And she is a policy person, not a politics person, but was so taken by how well this piece encapsulated the argument on behalf of Trump from a man who is clearly thoughtful, right? This, this guy is clearly thoughtful. And to Cruz's credit, what makes this such a good piece, he's not 
who's the woman who does these focus groups with Trump voters? I forget her name, but it's it's so there's so much sneering at them. I was about to say he is not sneeringly contemptuous of his subject. Yeah, he's, he he's trying to sincerely understand this yes. per, this person, and in so doing, gets this line: "I think his policies are going to be good, but it's going to be hard to watch this happen to our country. He's going to pull it apart." Now, if you've ever tried to to sum up where the Donald Trump voter is, where those these folks are, it is in the belief that basically the the purge, the purgative on the body politic is not completed, right? That Trump started the work of ravaging American politics, but but needs more time to smash everything. And that after it's smashed and after the the bad people have been punished, and once the revenge is exacted, then we can start to build anew after everyone has agreed that, you know, the, the punishment must end. And it's a wild way, for me, a wild way of thinking, because, of course, my Burkean, like, we have to hold on to the good things we have to build, not tear down, that it's not how I think of things, but I... it. Cruz did a wonderful job here of pulling this this viewpoint out of a person without shorthanding them as a rube or a bigot or whatever. It was really well done. And our friend Matt Continetti made this point yesterday that it's true. There was all the division and chaos and all of that with Trump. On the other hand, the border was more secure. Iran was not ginning up the Houthis to create chaos in the Red Sea and disrupt shipping. Hamas did not attack Israel. Russia did not invade Ukraine. You know, there's a substantive case to be made that things were actually better when Trump was president. And the real question is, will a second Trump term be different, given that the actual competent people who want to work for him are now saying they'll have nothing to do with him in a second term, and Trump is a lame duck? And- what is Trump's condition? If Trump, right. if if Trump is, so the post-Iowa Trump, that guy can win, right? Because basically what he's saying is, you know, I said things, you said things. I'm not worried about that stuff. But the I don't get mad, I get even Trump cannot win because that's the person who Biden and the Democrats will say, this guy will, the the, the New Hampshire voter that Cruz talked to, that argument loses the election, right? We have to destroy this so that we can start over is not appealing for, it is appealing for some older voters and it's appealing for some young younger voters, but people who have kids and people who have jobs and people who are trying to get through are not into the explosions. And the other difference with Trump, of course, and this is goes back to the question about running mate. Who does he know? Like he knows now, right? So the people who came to him and, and said, well, you know who you ought to pick? You ought to pick John Bolton. You know who would be good for you would be Rex Tillerson. You should check out Jim Mattis. Everybody likes Jim Mattis and and on and on, right? And And all of the competent, qualified individuals from the Republican Party who were put forward and Trump accepted because he wasn't prepared to win and he didn't have a transition team and Mike Pence and Chris Christie did it for him. 
those people, Trump, and Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, who have nothing to do with this campaign. And well, they'll they'll be back. They'll be back. They'll be yeah, back. They'll be back. The but the people who Trump wants, right, are loyalists and Bill Barr. So Bill Barr was like, I'm I'm here for the struggle. Mike Pompeo. Yeah, I'm here for the struggle. I want I want to blow stuff up. I'm I this is our opportunity to put forward a very conservative policy. We can do stuff we've not thought of before because of that. Well, Trump doesn't want them because in the end, what do they say? Uh no, uh no, we can't do that. That's illegal. We can't try that. And the people who Trump will surround himself with will tell us a lot about what's going on. His campaign right now is very professional. He's got a bunch of Bush alum competent mainstream Republican people yeah, running his campaign. And if that, if, if he can put forward the idea of, yeah, and I'm going to get all the normies back and we're going to unite the Republican party and get the normies back. And it's not going to be Steve Bannon and it's not going to be that stuff. Sebastian Gorka, I'm sorry, Dr. Gorka will not be part of the incoming administration, but we're going to get, we're going to unite the Republican party. Maybe. But if it's I'm not taking a chance on getting uh, 25th amendmented and I want, what does he say, stone cold killers, that's not a Trump that wins. Up next, Tim Scott engaged off the market. The New York Times reports GOP voters said no to Tim Scott. His girlfriend said yes. And they write, Mr. Scott, a longtime bachelor, attempted to keep his relationship status quiet. Well, that is until he brought his girlfriend on stage. This is me ad-libbing until he brought his girlfriend on stage after a Republican debate, picking up with the New York Times again. Even so, his bachelorhood had been the subject of much scrutiny during his presidential run and his Senate career. We, of course, talked about that on this podcast. Asked multiple times on the campaign trail about his marital status, Mr. Scott often demurred, saying he was praying for the right woman before taking that step. Well, I... Tim Scott is a real interesting character here. Um, talking about what are you going to get? I don't know what Tim Scott. I guess he's running for vice president. I guess he's uh, that he's ready to step up and and be Trump's running mate. And there's arguments to be made. But I will tell you this: in the way that he endorsed Trump and attacked Haley, I think he lost a lot of love. Right? I think he lost a lot, a lot of love. And with who? With the the great Tim Carney wrote a marvelous piece about the one county in Iowa that Nikki Haley won. And you know who he found there? Earnest, nice, decent, church-going people. That's who he found there. He found strong institutions, healthy families, robust communities of faith. And those are the earnest kind of conservative and all the, all the way down conservative who like nice, right? They want wholesome. They want that stuff. And I think a lot of them were open to voting for Tim Scott. He was not very good at running for president. And the I think he I, I think he may have rubioed himself with those voters. I'm not sure. We'll see how he conducts himself ahead of the South Carolina primary. But that was a the and the I have to say the marriage part, the engagement part felt powerfully calculated, right? Like it was, I, and I take, I try to take people at face value that, and it, there's, it makes sense that now that you're not running for president and you're sort of like over that part that now you can get engaged. 
and move on with your life and and do other things. I certainly see that part, but publicizing, I don't know. It just it 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 hit a clam for me. I, there was something off there. Chris, up next we have we're gonna have to play this clip. CNN's Laura Coates fighting back tears while interviewing Kamala Harris, telling her, "I'm struck just being in your presence." Let's uh. let's play the clip. Let me ask you one more question. I, it, I'm struck just in your presence. The I was watching you on stage, watching the reactions from the crowd, mm-hmm. looking you in the eye with your passion that you were displaying and talking about so many issues. And yet you hear candidates suggesting that a vote for President Biden because of his age is somehow a vote for you. And that is hurled as an insult. It's intended to demonstrate some negative viewpoint towards you. What is your reaction to this thought that with your background in particular, with your career, that there is some thought that you are incapable? Well, I I think that um, most women who have risen in their profession, who are leaders in their profession, have had similar experiences. Mm. Um, I was the first woman to be elected district attorney. I was the first woman to be elected attorney general of the state of California. And I'm the first woman to be vice president. And I love my job. (laughs) Now that is the kind of hard-hitting reporting Uh, that we tune in to CNN for. So I I was not familiar with Laura Coates, and so I looked her up. And she went to my high school. Oh, nice. I was familiar with her. So I guess she is not supposed to be a journalist or she's not supposed to be a news reporter. She's like a legal analyst and she's a personality and kind of an opinion person, I guess, would be the defense for this horrible, horrible interview that she was she was speaking as herself, not as a journalist, but woof. But. That's a perfect transition, Chris. But wait, but wait. There's one more, one uh, more, uh, uh, one more woof. Don't skip the Washington Post new product, Prompt 2024. I want to read what landed in my inbox from the Washington Post. We're here to get rid of any bad vibes around politics while bringing you the smartest takes on 2024. What on earth? What on earth? What are the best? I think they've found what's going to sa- solve their $100 million budget hole with this. We're here to get rid of any bad vibes around politics. Grow up. Grow up. There are bad vibes around things. Some things have bad vibes. And the idea that you could dumb down political coverage in such a way that people who don't like bad vibes could have a good experience is exactly the kind of garbage. I've written about and talked about for years now, which is you turn it into this beige, comfortable space where you're right and they're wrong, and you don't even have to consider what other people are thinking, or you don't have to consider bad vibes. That's not news. That is so insulting. That is that makes that makes Axios look like the old Wall Street Journal. That that's just I was so offended by we're here to get rid of any bad vibes around politics. Guess what? Politics is loaded with bad vibes. Welcome to adult life. Speaking of which, surrounding yourself with only good vibes. Good vibes only. 
a judge in Manhattan, David B. Cohen, oh. denied Fox Corp's motion to dismiss the $2.7 billion Smartmatic defamation lawsuit, which is of a piece with the Dominion defamation lawsuit. And this report indicates the judge found Smartmatic had sufficiently laid out claims that executives at the parent company, including Rupert Murdoch and his son Lachlan Murdoch, were involved in directing the election coverage by its subsidiary, Fox News Network LLC, along with several of its current and former on-air personalities, are also named in the suit and previously lost their attempts to dismiss the case. And in this piece, Fox News representatives are quoted saying they look forward to laying out their case at trial Uh in 2025. I anticipate a settlement given the way the Dominion lawsuit went. What say you, Chris? Well, I'm not going to say much, as you know, because I was... You will say your piece in a deposition. Yeah. I don't know how the case will go, but I will will not comment publicly on the matter insofar as is possible. The New York Times had a wonderful piece. Oh, yes. Wonderful piece. Billionaires wanted to save the news industry. They're losing a fortune. Time Magazine, The Washington Post, and The Los Angeles Times owned by Mark Benioff, Jeff Bezos, and Dr. Patrick Soon Xiong, are still losing money, and a lot of it. And Benjamin Mullen and Katie Robertson write, there's an old saying about the news business. If you want to make a small fortune, start with a large one. As the prospects for news publishers waned in the past decade, billionaires swooped in to buy some of the country's most fabled brands. Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post in 2013 for about $250 million, Dr. Patrick Soon Xion, a biotechnology and startup billionaire, purchased the Los Angeles Times in 2018 for $500 million. Mark Benioff, the founder of Salesforce, purchased Time magazine with his wife, Lynn, for $190 million in 2018. All three newsrooms greeted their new owners with cautious optimism that their business acumen and tech know-how would help figure out the perplexing question of how to make money as a digital publication but it increasingly appears that the billionaires are struggling like nearly everyone else. All three publications lost millions of dollars last year, people with knowledge of the company's finances have said, after considerable investment from their owners and intensive efforts to drum up new revenue streams. The Los Angeles Times just laid off hundreds of people this past week. It's patronage journalism. I'm all for it. I think it's great. But the Washington Post, as it is trying to remove the bad vibes around politics, is an example. So if you want, there's a lot of ways you could, lo- Jeff Bezos could lose $100 million a lot of different ways, right? There's a lot of different ways to lose $100 million. It feels like this is the lamest way to lose $100 million. It feels like favoring schlock, dumbing things down and doing clickbait to try to staunch the bleeding is the wrong way to lose $100 million. It would seem like, and this piece talks about the Atlantic and Lorraine Powell jobs there. I don't know what they're losing, but they're producing a bunch of, some of it interesting stuff, some of it not, but the Atlantic seems to be more like, okay, you're, you're, you're making the publication that you want. You're making you. This is the publication you want, and you're making it that way. 
what is Time Magazine? I have no idea. I have no idea what Time Magazine is or is for or is supposed to be. I know it was famous and it was really important. It was the most important publication, arguably, in the United States for a few decades. I have no idea what it is. And I wish that the Washington Post was the publication that Jeff Bezos wanted it to be. I guess now it would be a lot of Pitbull music reviews and hot my art art basil coverage. I don't know what it would be, but I wish it would just be what he wanted it to be because you could have a lot more fun losing $100 million than removing the bad vibes from politics. Well, do we know what he wanted it to be? I'm not sure he's really articulated a vision of what he wanted this paper to be. I, I, buying a valuable name brand is a thing of value. So do it on the men's clothing side. Brooks Brothers, famous brand, well-known brand, brand in distress, and it's been bought and sold several times. Who makes Brooks Brothers clothes? Whoever, right? They're, they're bought and ordered else. It's not like there's a factory somewhere in which the Brooks Brothers people are making it. But the brand of Brooks Brothers carries the legacy, has the history, and so it's a thing of value. The Washington Post is a brand of value. And in an atomized media age, people recognize, oh, I know what that is. That's probably going to have political news in it. It's the Washington Post. It, it is, a leg, as, as they would say, a legacy brand. And there was reason for Bezos to say, I'm building a media empire and having a prestige nameplate on it will be good for building that out and, and doing that stuff. It just, it, it lacks vigor. It lacks purpose. And it seems just adrift. It would be a valuable newspaper if it covered the city of Washington. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't did, that be good? It did local Washington, D.C. news. Yes. Ag agreed. And in the same vein, the, the Washington Post reports, layoffs in peril Sports Illustrated as owner and publisher battle over money. The layoffs came amid an ongoing dispute between Authentic Brands Group and the Arena Group, the two companies atop an unusual ownership structure for Sports Illustrated. ABG, which owns the brand, is a licensing company that owns the brands of celebrities such as Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley. Arena Group pays ABG $15 million a year for the rights to publish ah. Sports Illustrated in print and online. Earlier this month, the Arena Group missed a $3.75 million payment to ABG, which ABG said violated the terms of its licensing deal. Excuse me. An SEC filing Thursday said Arena's publishing license was terminated. And this goes on. Oh, no. If read the read doesn't the, pay me, the I preach. The next part is so good. Manoj. Manoj Bargava. The Manoj founder. Manoj Bargava, the founder of Five Hour Energy, <laughs> is the largest shareholder of the Arena Group after making an investment in the company last year and is leading its strategy. If a company doesn't pay me, I breach. Jamie Salter, the CEO of ABG, said in an interview with the Washington Post on Friday, adding that Bargava has sought to lower the licensing fee. He's trying to negotiate with me, and I told him to F off. He tried to change the agreement. When you sign a deal with us, you live by the deal. And here, here this is perfect. What is ABG? ABG owns notable nameplates, Marilyn Monroe, Elvis, Pre like the Washington Post, 
famous brands of the 20th century that are in distress. They own these brands, and Sports Illustrated is one of them. I have bought for my children and for friends famous Sports Illustrated covers. They're beautiful covers of big moments in sports, and it's really cool. What's in the magazine? Not a lot. The Athletic has just come to own the space in a very short period of time. The coverage in Sports Illustrated is not good, but as a brand, it's valuable. So if you are the Authentic Brands Group, ironically, the ironically named Authentic Brands Group, you can license the name. You can use the name. You can have Sports Illustrated branded stuff. You can talk about Sports Illustrated. Do they even really need the magazine to be published in order to continue to do that? Or can they just have gnomes using AI crank out covers and post them on exactly. social media? I, I, it's, it's, this, is the sad, this is the sad state of, you know, we talk about the legacy media, these valuable brands, but then they come with all this baggage, all this cost, all these employees, these pension funds. This, it's like we talked last week about the Baltimore Sun, where it's like, okay, we're going to take it, we're going to strip it, we're going to dump it, and we're going to get what we can out of this. It's like the Gordon Gecko-ification of these brands. But I will say, to be lame, somebody's still got to cover the news, right? Somebody still has to do it. And I would, I would further submit that there is a market for it. People do want the news. People consume lots of news. We have someone covering the news. We just have, we have the athletic doing it more capably. Yep, exactly. And a different place. And so the utility of, you know, of what Sports Illustrated was doing has been consumed by a different brand. Schumpeterian creative destruction continues apace. Chris, that brings us to, oh, no, no, no. Excuse me. The late night shocker that wasn't. Shocker. Oh, my gosh. It's a shocker. John Stewart returning to the Daily Show once a week through the presidential election. Shocking. News team hosting other nights. Yeah. It's shocking. Stewart will return on February 12th. Stop. I'm shocked. Produce. Yeah. I can't go on. The shock is too great. It's I I can't I can't process this. I think this is probably a good idea for John Stewart. Probably a good idea for Comedy Central. And I dig it and go for it. Have fun. The funny part to me is the coverage. The coverage of it is like, what? Why are we shocked, right? What's what's the shock? I'm. Wh- why are we shocked that a guy who used to be on a show is coming back to a show that he used to be on? I don't, I don't understand. Shocked. That brings us to our facile file. Oh, uh, excellent facility. This, this was amazing. We need... <sighs> Science, and this is the Washington Post, to reveal why American politics are so intensely polarized. I think this would not be in their feel-good section. These, there are there are some bad vibes here. We should be aware. Yes, that this, for, yes. For for <laughs> so vibe warning. So this is a trigger warning. It's a vibe warning about politics. And here is what they have done. And this is I hate this. I hate when. We treat social science like hard science. The It's feelings-based, said Liliana Mason, a political scientist at Johns Hopkins University. It's, polarizations that, it's polarization that's based on our feelings for each other, not based on extremely divergent policy preferences. True. The tendency to form tightly knit groups has roots in evolution, da-da-da-da-da. Sure. All, this, this is all true. All true. The idea that 
science that this is like we've science has uncovered we've we've figured it out science has done it now science has explained for us what's wrong with you and what's wrong with our politics go read edmund burke go read anybody right go go read adam smith go read hume go read any this is not a new like whoa wait a minute everything was cool and we used to have fact-based arguments and now we're just emotional no, come on, people. Come on, guys. For real. Harumph. Science. Jane Goodall does science. Oh, my gosh. And she wants only one thing. What this is she? This is from the New York Times' Climate Forward newsletter. Is it? Does she, does she want a good crispy chicken wing? What does she want? The headline is Jane Goodall wants only one thing. As my colleague Manuela Andrioni wrote last week, the leaders elected this year will face consequential consequential choices in energy policy, deforestation, and emissions reduction. In the United States, Republicans are planning to undo environmental regulations if former President Donald J. Trump wins re-election. In Mexico, the favorite to win the presidency in June is Claudia Scheinbaum, a climate scientist who is now mayor of Mexico City and has vowed to take action to reduce emissions. Now, Jane Goodall had a message for folks in Davos. Half the planet is going to be voting, she said on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum in Davos last week. This year could be the most consequential voting year in terms of the fate of our planet. I love the premise. She thinks she thinks governments around the globe are not working hard enough to combat climate change. I love the premise that there is a person in the universe, in this world, there is any person who was saying, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're saying Jane Goodall says this is the year? Now is the time? I guess I guess you're right. I'll have to vote for, checks notes, the Democratic nominee. Oh, okay. Like, I, the, the, the phenomenon of digging up and people do it. Jane Goodall is to the New York Times as Sammy the Bull Gravano is to Jesse Waters on Fox News. Here is a person who persuades no one. Here is a person who, if you like it and you're for it, great. It will, it will affirm your choice. But the idea of Jane Goodall or Sammy the Bull Gravano making people go, hey, you know what? I hadn't thought about it that way. I'm hearing your call. I hear your call, Sammy the Bull. I hear your call, Jane Goodall. Now I will think anew and act anew. This is just affirming people's existing biases and making them feel superior to other people. Boo. Can you take us into our style section? I have several items that will take us into my influencer obsession. Well, we have to talk about the Oscars, apparently, which is inflicting the kind of pain on the American news-consuming public right now that could only be matched by Taylor Swift and the Kansas City Chiefs. And well, first, did you see Barbie? I did not see Barbie. Okay. I have not seen Barbie. I have not, I have seen neither Barbie nor Oppenheimer, though my eldest man child, who is uh, my most reliable source for movie information, tells me Oppenheimer was excellent. I'm not obviously going to watch a movie that long. I went to see Killers of the Flower Moon to appease him. But I'm just here to tell everybody, keep them at two hours. We don't, we don't need your, we don't need your extra half hour. But anyway, the Barbie movie was the director of the Barbie movie, whose name is Greta Gerwig. Is that correct? 
Yes. Was passed over for a Best Director nomination for the Oscars while the actor who played the Ken doll in the movie was was tapped for an Ryan act, Gosling. Ryan Gosling was tapped for, I assume, a Best Supporting Actor. It was Ken was the Ken? I assume the Ken doll was a supporting actor. Yes, Best Supporting Actor. Okay, so uh, Brian Behar, Brian Behar, whatever. Apologies, who apparently is a screenwriter who also writes for the Huffington Post, observed the following. Maybe this is an oversimplification, but Ryan Gosling being nominated, but not Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig, perfectly explains to me why we aren't in the eighth year of Hillary Clinton's presidency. Well, there you have it. It's just that simple. If men are still being nominated for Oscars over women, that's why... Hillary Clinton lost. It's it's right there. It's so clear. Don't you people understand? Well, Andrew Stiles at the Free Beacon weighed in on this, saying Ryan Gosling's Oscar nomination for Barbie is proof that men still matter in Hollywood. Feminist film would not have succeeded without strong male presence and masculine wit. And I imagine that part of the thinking behind the people who nominated Gosling was, Good for him. He was willing to play uh, to to self-own dudes by playing a villain or an unflattering character in a movie about what's wrong with men and right with women, right? Or what what how how men afflict women. But that's not good enough. And I I believe is this the year in which movies have to meet a DEI standard in order to win Oscars? At some point, they've set a threshold that says if the movie doesn't include the, a requisite number of characters and production people who are non-white and, and uh, non-male, that they won't be eligible. And I guess I believed wrongly that that would mean the end of the Oscars. I had hoped fervently that we would be able to stop talking about the Oscars. And yet, the, the choice of the Ken doll for a supporting actor nod has kicked off a, a firestorm of controversy. I, you would not hope as fervently as I had that the Oscars would not matter. Alas, I don't know the answer to your question because I don't follow these things at all. I think well, um, what well, I do follow, we'll have to get pod on. We do the free beacons, wonderful, intrepid movie reviewer. What I do follow is the next item up in our style section Bianca Sensori and Kanye West sporting matching raincoats. Oh, dear. Transparent raincoats. Oh, my. With very little else under while out in Los Angeles. The Yeezy architect appeared to be wearing just a pair of black panties with no bra underneath her sheer plastic jacket, which she wore with the whole hood pulled up over her short hair. The Gold Digger singer borrowed his wife's style by sporting the same Balenciaga jacket she wore with an animal print catsuit last week. And although it's unclear if he was wearing a shirt with the opaque coat, he donned a pair of baggy black sweatpants. Well, a good style spotting. These are troubled. People. And we will link the article so that you can see the pictures for yourself. Troubled people. And she's wearing knee high boots with it, too. Well, there you go. Hot, hot looks for 24. Hot looks for 24. And it is the perfect transition to the Wall Street Journal feature, Why Women Are Walking Around Without Pants This Winter. 
Are they? I have not noticed pantless women. I feel like I would have observed. I feel like that would have caught my and, attention. And there are tons of pictures of women basically wearing, you know, normal shirts. And then they're like these booty short kind of knicker things. Okay. And the quote in the best quote in the piece is, listen, I hate pants, says Beverly Nguyen a New York stylist and founder of the home goods store Beverly's, who is admittedly lithe, brave, and fashionable. At a recent that's how, dinner party That's at how her I house, describe myself. That's how I think yeah, of myself. Yes. At a recent dinner party at her house, she wore a spin on a Bottega Veneta outfit Kendall Jenner wore in Los Angeles in 2022. Navy sweater, black tights, black heels. She thinks the look works best with a conservative pairing, business up top and party on the bottom. Oh, like a mullet. So pantless women are the fashion mullet. I get it. Okay, now it makes sense. Business up top, party on the bottom. That's right. Okay, there you go. And this is perfect because my obsessions of this week are very fashion focused. And we are now at our obsessions of the week. Where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. And mine, I have twin obsessions. The first is the Wall Street Journal is really crushing the fashion scene this week. The first is about the influencer Ariel Charnas. And the journal had a big, it was the top story on their website. Investors poured millions into her fashion brand, then it all fell apart. And this woman, she started a blog in 2010 where she documented her outfits. The blog was called Something Navy. She then partnered with Nordstrom on a brand called Something Navy that was very successful. And she then spun that off into her own brand. And there were Something Navy stores in New York City where that investors poured millions into this Something Navy brand. The problem was she had started documenting her own outfits and she has an Instagram with a million plus followers. I am one of these followers. And let's just say that the outfits that she chronicles herself wearing on her Instagram were not exactly the more affordable pieces that something Navy was selling in the stores. She's wearing all high fashion stuff in these Instagram things. And people picked up on that. Investors were disappointed that Charnas didn't promote something Navy more on her own Instagram, where she frequently posted about brands like The Row. And The Row is the Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen brand that is so expensive. Oh, dear. She always says she invests in pieces that last a lifetime. So I wondered why she didn't wear her brand, says Karina Iglesias, a 39-year-old medical data researcher in San Diego, who has followed Charnas online for about nine years. It didn't seem like Charnas cared about the clothes from something Navy, Iglesias says, which, quote, made me not want to buy it. Scanlon attributes the brand's struggles to external forces that affected business across retail, such as changing consumer habits and a shifting landscape for digital marketing. Yada, yada, yada. Anyhow, this thing, there were, there was, there were stores in Manhattan, there was a store in Los Angeles, and there were supposed to be new stores opening anywhere, uh, everywhere, and this whole thing went belly up. Basically because it was fake. She was wearing super expensive clothing on her Instagram and not selling that in the stores. Oh. Now, now, there's another influencer who I'm a huge fan of who – came to be, she got famous being on Rich Kids of Beverly Hills. 
Her name is Morgan Stewart, and she married Jordan McGraw, Phil McGraw's son. Ah. And he's a country singer. Sure. And Obviously. Okay, she's also started her own brand, but her whole identity is basically being rich. Her father's super rich, and she posts all this. You know, she's always wearing super expensive clothes, but she does not pretend to like she's not selling cheap stuff. She's like, I'm rich. I wear rich people stuff. She's very successful. And there's an amazing quote. This is also in the journal. And the headline is from $800 sandals to $1,600 skirts. If she likes it, they buy it. Morgan Stewart McGraw, a former star of Rich Kids of Beverly Hills, has quietly become a powerful booster of the biggest luxury brands. There's no fakery here. And there's an amazing quote in the article where she's asked if she's successful because she doesn't need the money. So Stuart McGraw said she posted links to her clothing on Instagram because she wanted to, hold on, because she wanted to let people in on the note, not because she was reliant on affiliate revenue. When asked if this is because she doesn't need the money, she fired back, no, you always need the money. Money is something to be treasured and earned. <laughs> and I loved it. It was like the opposite. It's the opposite of the Ariel Charnas something Navy farce. So good for her. The first step in her success sequence is to be born extraordinarily rich and then marry an extraordinarily rich person. That's the... Well, the other girl was born rich too. Oh, okay. All right. Well, kudos... Not as rich, but... Kudos to Morgan Stewart Kudos to her for not pretending to be accessible, okay? Yes. No pretending to be, you know, my top is from J. Crew. Yes. Here, here. My obsession also relates to people pretending. And is also from the Wall Street Journal. This is a, this piece really touched me. It's by John Camp. Headline, she talked like a millionaire, slept in a parking garage and fooled nearly everybody. And it's the story of Joe Franklin, who was a correspondent for the News Hour and public television. A beautiful woman. And she had a focus on the Middle East and all of that stuff. And what follows is a heartbreaking story. And I, of course, I, I was drawn to it because working in television, working in the media and knowing people whose lives had gone off, off track and people who had gotten lost along the way, that's something that I've seen and it's heartbreaking. What this ends up being, and kudos to camp and kudos to the journal, is a, a unsparing sympathetic but realistic discussion about mental illness and what it does to families and how under just under the surface of American life are the millions and millions and millions of people who are struggling with mental illness and have people in their families who are struggling with mental illness and you know we talking about it is hard we talk about it with when when there's gun violence we talk about it when it relates to drug addiction and overdoses, but finding this story and telling this story in a fascinating, compelling way helps readers, helps us to think about what mental illness really does to people and really does to families. It's unsparing, but sympathetic. It's excellent. Very, very well done. And I just think we need more of it, right? This is an issue that we have to talk about. And we, there aren't the, I think part of the problem in our highly politicized coverage of things 
and the way we talk about things is, is there a political angle? Is there a political issue here? Who's to blame? Whose fault is this? And who has the solution? Whose solution will win? Whose solution will lose? That's my job. I'll do that. Okay. I'll do the politics part. We need a lot more journalism that talks about what the problems are. And yes, talks about what potential solutions are, but examines these things at a human scale and doesn't turn them into political footballs. It's really good. And I, I am grateful and I, I'm eager to see more. Chris, that brings me to my favorite time of the week, which is reader mail. And our first letter is from Christy Crane in Montpelier, Idaho. She writes, Dear Eliana and Chris, I look forward to your podcast every week and appreciate the insight that you bring to the news. I've learned many interesting tidbits from your show and I'm therefore happy to be able to answer a question that Chris posed during the last podcast. He asked, who needs to know that it's hard to hire a hitman? There's a woman from my community that would be in a very different position today if she had known this last summer. She became angry with another woman who was causing her problems and turned to the internet where she found rentahitman.com and solicited their help. Oh, the no. The website quickly turned her information over to the police oh, when no. it became clear she was serious and after some negotiation and a meeting with an undercover officer, she was arrested. Oh, no. The details of the case provide for some entertaining, though somewhat tragic, reading. I can only surmise that this woman isn't alone in her delusion about the ease of hiring a hitman, and I can only hope that the article you reference will be a saving grace for tens, if not hundreds, of our fellow countrymen and women. Thank you for all that you do and the effort you put into your work. Wow. Wonderful. It, the, just a per So I guess, Ms. Crane, this is in defense, really, of the New York Times story that I was making fun of. Because apparently some people do think that it's easy to obtain a hitman if you are not a member of organized crime. So I, I stand I stand corrected. That's uh, amazing. I love it. I mean, I'm against, I'm against people trying to murder people, but I love this story. Thank you. Our next note is from Kaylee in Palo Alto, who writes, Hey, guys, I listen to your podcast every week and love it when you share your thoughts on the latest fast food crazes here and abroad. When looking at European media, it seems they often depict American fast food as akin to grade A dog food. While their EU regulations contribute to a higher quality standard for McDonald's, Burger King, Popeyes, etc. I was wondering if you guys during your travels to Europe have actually noticed a difference in the quality of American fast food between Europe and the U.S. Well, have you? I would say I don't eat a ton of fast food here or in Europe, but the quality of the average, let's say, pret a manger or the, you know, the average cafe or sandwich shop is way better in Europe. So I, I've eaten American fast food in some other countries, and I want to just say that the McDonald's Corporation does an amazing job of, of delivering consistency. I love American fast food. McDonald, I don't know if if I'm dubious about a Burger King in the United States. I'm definitely not like I bet it's fine over here. Not that I won't eat at a Burger King. Just you know. Oh, I love a Burger. I know King. you love a Burger King. I'm just saying, you know, uh, caveat emptor, whopper emptor, but McDonald's provides a really good, stable level of product. But I will also say this. American beef is so much better than European beef. It's not close, right? American beef is amazing. 
and European beef is not. And part of that is because we feed our beef corn and it's sweet, delicious, and well marbled with fat and wonderful and grass fed European beef. It's okay if you want to finish on like feed them grass and then finish uh, uh, on corn. It's like an okay compromise. But I want corn-fed American delicious beef, and that's true. But European other things, the breads, the cheeses, the cured meats, as a glutton, the world, every corner of the world that I have been to offers a delicious and delightful, like on my most recent visit to Europe, I was just reminded how much I love German breakfast. Here's a bunch of meat. Here's a bunch of cheese. Have a cup of coffee and enjoy delicious meats. So there, you, you got to go with the flow. You got to go with what's around. Chris, that brings us to your favorite time of the week. When I am forced to say something nice, but as always, you will lead us by examples. Have at it. Well, I hope we can, I want to hear just a little clip of Charles Osgood the bow-tied host of CBS Sunday Morning when I loved CBS Sunday Morning, when it was my favorite TV news show because it was serious but not self-serious. There was a sweetness to it. There was a decency to it that was really good and thoughtful and found a way to be pleasant too. And Charles Osgood was that guy. And Charles Osgood was a peach and the kind of broadcaster that I aspire to be and just noting his passing at the age of 91, he was, he was one of the good ones. Man is mortal. This is true, and that applies to women, too. To each of us, to those we love, and to our dearest friends, at some point, human life begins, and at some point, it ends. We don't know when. Life is dispensed in differing amounts. But it is not how long we've lived. It's how we've lived that counts. Death, like life, is natural and not to be afraid of, if you love life, guard well your time. For time's the stuff life's made of. Chris, my favorite item of the week was a wonderful report in Bloomberg News about the economic costs of the regional war. Yes, regional war that has broken out in the Middle East with the Houthis attacking commercial ships and the U.S. and the U.K. bombing in return. And Bloomberg notes that Commercial ships are avoiding the Red Sea and instead going around Africa, adding an extra two weeks to their voyages, which is quite costly. And they write, by attacking ships plying the Red Sea, Yemen's Iran-backed Houthi rebels have caused the biggest disruption to global trade since the COVID-19 pandemic and provoked a military response, including U.S. and U.K. airstrikes on Yemen. And they detail that this is affecting a quarter of all global shipping. And they say about 12, tw about 12 percent of global trade normally passes through the Suez Canal and by extension, the Red Sea. Oh, sorry. So it's 12 percent, not a quarter, including as much as 30 percent of container tra traffic and more than one trillion worth of goods a year. And. As of mid-January, the average number of tankers and cargo, cargo ships transiting through the Suez Canal has fallen about 40 percent from the level at the start of 2023. The diverted journeys around Africa can take as much as 25% longer than using the Suez Canal shortcut between Asia and Europe. These trips are also more costly for ship operators still willing to brave the Red Sea. Insurance costs have increased tenfold. 
The cost of shipping containers from China to the Mediterranean Sea has more than quadrupled since late November, according to the cargo booker Fridos. Very, very interesting about the economic toll of this war and a really well done piece. I highly recommend it. Nice. And with that, that is all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, please email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. And sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. 